VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello, this is The Game Podcast from The Times, and I'm Natalie Sawyer. Joining Gregor Robertson and I today is Tom Clark. Tom, it's so good to have you with us on the pod. It's been a while. I know, thank you very much. Glad to be back, I must say. Um, I must confess, Nat, I have been waiting for a special day to return because I wanted to have some good news for us to talk about. And, you know, things have been a little bit tense in the last few weeks, haven't they? (laughs) I think I know what you're getting at. And I think that will be my beloved bees. We'll talk about them in more detail, won't we? But I appreciate you waiting for the good news. And perhaps you are that good omen then that the Brentford are looking forward to for Tuesday in the Championship playoff final. Gregor, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. I thought Tom was going to start telling us about a new Lincoln signing or something there, but in case he's happy with Brentford. No, I mean, you must be delighted as well, Matt. Oh, I am. I am. It's kind of like a sense of relief, let's put it that way. Not that I didn't think we could get the job done, and not that we have got the job done, but just to kind of yeah. come through what we've come through. And I know, as I say, we are going to talk about this in more detail, but to just come through that bad run of form, which we hit at the wrong time, and then to, to perform as well as we did against Swansea in that second leg, it just it just makes you feel like, yep. Yeah, we, we deserve to be in, in the position we're in right now. So, yes, all is good. All is good. And we've got loads coming up. We're going to discuss the battle between red and blue as Chelsea's Frank Lampard takes on Mikel Arteta's Arsenal in the FA Cup final on Saturday. We'll also look ahead to the National League playoff final this weekend. First, though, and there really is only one place to start, Brentford are in the championship playoff final. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync... Things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
So in just a few hours' time, we will know who Brentford, yes, Brentford, are playing in the Championship playoff final at Wembley on Tuesday night. The Bees overturned a first-leg deficit on Monday night to beat Swansea City 3-2 on aggregate and book their spot in the Championship playoff final against either Fulham or Cardiff. I'm going to come to both of you first for your opinion on Brentford. Is it a case of Brentford getting back to their best, Gregor? Yeah, I mean, this was... Uh thrilling performance I think what um, Thomas Frank said afterwards it was just so clear in the performance he's saying that they still felt that irritation in their bodies after the after the Swansea game and you know they kind of they felt the injustice they felt that at Rico Henry's red card which was obviously overturned and that was a big boost you know I think people were almost surprised by his pre-match sort of utterances about I'm 100% certain mm. we're going to win this game you know it was like is he getting a wee bit too worked up about this but no it's clear that they were all just kind of had that attitude where they approached the game thinking there is no alternative to winning this game we are the best team we've got to go out and prove it and they did Tom you said you wanted to come on when there was good news so this is the good news that we're going to talk about and it's not your beloved Lincoln in red and white stripes, but but Brentford. And over the course of a season, they have done particularly well. Some would say perhaps punching above their weight as well. But they were, and I don't want to put mouth, words into your mouth, but they were quite impressive, weren't they, yesterday? They certainly were. I mean, obviously, um, once lockdown was over and football returned, you know, I've been kind of diving into the championship far more with uh, with, uh, with no Lincoln to watch. And I must confess to watching games like when you played at Stoke, and, you know, that's the kind of thing I was talking about, the idea of coming on the podcast and having to discuss that performance with you, because that was that was pretty dire, really. Um, and so watching that last night, I kind of got a flavour of what this team is really all about. Um, you know, the fast-paced passing, you know, that first goal, that ball through, I think it was Jensen just kind of cutting the defence in half. I just thought it was really brilliant. And I, I would like to go back to Gregor's point about how worked up they seem to be, because and maybe ask him whether there's been any times when he's either been a player or played against teams who were too worked up. Because I think that's fascinating how they seem to channel that in the right way rather than in a way where it cost them dearly because they were trying too hard. Because you see that a lot in football and in all sport. Teams try too hard to avenge something horrible that's happened to them and it ends up costing them further down the line. I think that was what was particularly impressive about last night. The game that leapt to my mind was, and we're going to talk about the National League playoff final at the end, but I played two in the space of of a year and we lost, uh, when I was at Grimsby Town, we we lost the first one on penalty kicks. And it was, I remember even Ian Holloway actually was doing the TV TV work for for, for that game and he said, he kind of gave us a little bit of advice. He said, uh, you need to put that heart in your top pocket and remember it this time next year. And I remember we approached that game and it was the same sort of thing, this thing that, that Thomas Frank was talking about, there'd be no alternative to winning and a kind of 100% certainty that you were going to do so. It was just going out and kind of enacting it on the pitch. That's the way we felt in that game. And it's very rare you feel that. And, you know, obviously this has happened in a far shorter time frame. They, I think Brentford, given that they've also gone so close in the past, there've just been little things about their game that they've had to tweak and we've spoken about their defence has been improved so much this year. And the way they finished the season, we had the opportunity and it was like, are we going to blow this? And I thought it was really interesting as well that Ollie Watkins said, you know, he had people around for a, all the team around for a barbecue. They all just sat down and said, look, we're not going to blow this, are we? We're, mm. we're the best team in this, in, the, in these playoffs. And, you know, I'm sure there'll be supporters of other teams thinking, hang on a minute. 
you know, there's quite a lot of love for Brentford now. It's 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 changed that. It used to be, you know, there was a bit of scorn about about the money ball kind of narrative and and you know you know you can't win games with statistics and all that. But they've proven it, and I think they've converted a lot of people. They've kind of proven that with this kind of intelligent, joined up, consistent approach, this is a model for for clubs to punch above their weight. And I think all of that kind of probably fed into their attitudes. It was just like we we know that we're the best team here. We just got to go out and do it, and they did. It's an interesting one, isn't it? When you mention Thomas Frank, because uh, he polarises people. Uh, obviously, Brentford fans adore him. We get emotionally involved because of the way he speaks. He really just gets to everybody. The way he sort of wants to inspire everyone, as you rightly pointed out, the fact that he said, we will 100% win this game or, or at Griffin Park, as we went on to do. But if you look, <laughs> not that Twitter or social media should be a barometer in any way, but if you look at it, the amount of people that say they despise Thomas Frank for his arrogance, I find it quite entertaining, but that would be because I'm a, I'm a Brentford fan. And um, I, I just find it fascinating, the whole Thomas Frank thing. I think he's done such wonders at Brentford. You know, he's continued on with that expansive style that obviously we'd be wanting to play for a very long time at Brentford and something the owner, Matthew Benham, has been pushing for. Credit, obviously, to Dean Smith as well, who had sort of not just started it, because obviously it did come a, a little bit beforehand with Uwe Rosler and Mark Warburton, but Dean Smith really pushed us on. But then Thomas Frank has just come in with a very different energy, I have to say, uh, and also was very aware previous season of where things had gone wrong, which I know you've alluded to, uh, Gregor, with the fact we needed experience in that team, which they brought in with Pontus Janssen. We'll forget the little incident in the game against Swansea. <laughs> we all know that Pontus Janssen might have a little ricket at him every now and then. But, you know, with Thomas Frank, he just... There's just something about him that I find so very interesting. And I kind of wonder with both of you, if you think the same, do you think he's too arrogant or does he actually set the right tone as, as a manager? What would you think if he was your boss, Gregor? I think you're, you're, the word you used that leapt out from what you said there was energy and you can see it. You can see, you know, he's, he's pounding away on that chewing gum on the touchline for 90 minutes mm. and he was even getting into a little kind of, a little spat with, I think it was Conor Roberts at the end. He's feisty, you know, and but he's he, you can just tell he's full of energy, and that's very much kind of a characteristic of all the best modern coaches. I think they kind of they really are full of energy, and 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 the the players want to follow him because he's engaging. I think yeah. that's the word. He's he's very engaging character. Yeah. And the, you know the one thing I would say is like you know as I said, there's been a lot of love, and the kind of the fact that they they performed like we know Brentford can. And they've made the final, and it was the final game at Griffin Park. I don't know, the the aftermath of it was quite a kind of almost like the job's done. And I know that it's not, they don't think that. But I think it was almost that get you know, overcoming the three losses was their biggest hurdle. And I think it probably was. Mm. But now that they've done that, they still have got another job to do. Um, if they perform the same way, they'll, they'll do it. But I hope they just, I hope they do kind of have a deep breath now after this and, and, uh, and realise that they've got another big game ahead. I think you're right. And I think we have to be sort of temper everything. It, it's, I think the celebrations probably came about because of what had happened previously, because people had said we were bottlers and that we had those two opportunities to, to claim automatic promotion, which we weren't able to take against teams who were at the different end of the table to, to where Brentford were at. But to have come through that and, and a very demoralising set of matches, even that first leg against Swansea as well, when you think about it, and to have put in that performance, which we know Brentford were capable of, but you didn't know if they were capable of it at this time, considering what they've gone through. I, I think it, it 
for me, I mean, I'm going to wax lyrical about them, aren't I? It's, it's rather pointless me, me even talking about it because I just think they're, they're brilliant. But but obviously it's not job done and it, we have to sort of temper all celebrations because of that. But Tom, when, when you look upon Brentford and what they're doing in the EFL, I mean, you look at the, the playoffs, every single team in the playoffs bar Brentford have been in the Premier League recently. They're all sort of working with parachute payments still. This is little old Brentford. We're very little, you know, in West London. I think it's incredibly impressive. And you touched on it before about the model and things. And I think that now is the most impressive and telling thing. I would just say quickly on Thomas Frank, I think it's a sign of a manager doing very, very well for himself if you can go on Twitter and find people slagging him off all the way up Mm. the division. Uh, But yeah, going back to that model, if you look at even West Brom, who've gone up, and Swansea, who you played last night, if you were to look at their best players this season, you'll find a lot of players who are on loan from Premier League clubs who aren't going to be there next year. Maybe they'll have to beg for them back. If you look at Brentford's squad, you know it's built up of players that, even if you don't go up this season, yes, people like Ollie Watkins will probably leave, but you will make money from that, and then you can reinvest, and then you can go again and maybe challenge to win the championship. I know I'm talking worst-case scenario here, but if, say, for example, Swansea have got to go back and start again and plan for next season. They've got to do it without Rian Brewster, probably, unless they can persuade Liverpool to have him back. Conor Gallagher as well, who they got in uh, in January, has been a big part of their team. That, to me, is the most impressive. And I think I know for a fact, shamelessly shoehorning Lincoln in here, but clubs like Lincoln, who are in League One and are hoping to kind of stay there with a young manager like Mike Clapton, they're looking at that Brentford model of bring in a player, improve him, sell him on, make a profit, bring in another player, you know, that kind of Mm. turnover, people kind of lazily just dismiss it. Oh, they're doing the money ball thing. But it's not. It's a brilliant, brilliant thing to be doing. And particularly in the current financial climate, which is going to have its impact on football, that's arguably one of the most impressive things about Brentford. Also, just to pick up on what you said about the loan system and how Brentford for a number of seasons now have decided not really to go down the loan system because they have never seen it to be long-term beneficial because, as you say, the next season that player might move on and uh, or might go back to their parent club or might go to another club and it you know long-term it doesn't quite work for how Matthew Benham and Brentford see football working for the club. Um, Ollie Watkins scored his 26th goal of the season in that victory over Swansea at Griffin Park, Gregor. What do you make of Ollie Watkins? Do you think he's Premier League ready? Because there are people sort of looking at him, so so we gather. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's not just it's not just his abilities; it's his work rate and attitude that were so impressive. Especially last night. I mean, he was a man possessed. He's charging back to defend. Yeah. There was a moment in the first half I remember that leapt out when Brian and Wemo was was he kind of fluffed an opportunity. He kept he didn't want to hit it with his right foot, and he he ran the ball out of play. And he's, you know, his hands are on his head and Watkins ran straight over to him, started clapping and encouraging him, saying, you know, get back in. You know, he was so focused. And even though the last minute he was hearing right down to the touchline to win a free kick, he was, yeah, he was brilliant. Obviously, the goals this season, the fact that he's shown how versatile he is and he can go from the, go from the wing to, to playing through the middle, it's just going to add to his, his value and his sort of and how coveted he'll be because even you know even before the season he was one of the best wingers in the league but the fact that he can play anywhere across the front three now mm. um, you know I think Brentford have to have to be promoted even if you are promoted there'll be a chance that <laughs> other clubs will be coming looking sniffing but obviously the imperative to sell will be will be much lessened 
And this is the fear for Brentford fans. If, if things don't go to plan on Tuesday, and we can't obviously dismiss whoever they'll play in the final because they'll have been there, rightly so, and it will be a one-off game, so who knows what will happen. But that is the fear for Brentford fans, that if, if we don't go up, what happens to this squad that has impressed so much? And I even question what could happen to Thomas Frank. Could someone come in for Thomas Frank and think, well, look at the work he's done at Brentford. Can he go higher? Um, am I right to be worried, Tom? Yeah, I think so. Definitely people will be looking at him and your players. But I would go back to the point I made before. And if you look back, you yourself talked about the previous managers you've had and, you know, losing Dean Smith and talking about the aftermath of that and what would happen and Thomas Frank's come in and done the same job. So I think there's the evidence there to suggest that whether you lose players or manager or both and things don't work out, that I would I would still be confident you'll be in the promotion picture next season. But can I just ask now, I think one of the most important things is where are you and how are you going to be watching the match? Oh, my goodness. This is a very good question to ask um, because I rather stupidly didn't think about when the playoff final was taking place. So I have booked <laughs> to go away on that day. I am actually going to Ireland by ferry. Thankfully, I will be in Ireland when... Um, when the game is underway so I shall be able to watch it I say should be able to watch it. I don't know if I will be able to watch it because I find it so difficult to watch Brentford at the moment this is the most important game in our history so I'm a little bit worried already getting the nerves but um, yeah bad planning on my part I know I was going to say because I remember watching the um, you were in the Times Sports office for the, <laughs> you were, the exactly. penalty shootout against Columbia and you were the only person not watching last night when Rianne Brewster scored I was thinking Nat's going to be, you know, taking the dog for a walk or something here because she's definitely not going to be watching this. Absolutely. I have to say at that point, so with around 15, 10, 15 minutes to go in the game, I, I vacated the living room and set up home in the bedroom where I just stayed for a very, very long time. Just every now and then flicking on my phone, just seeing what was going on. And yeah, panic had certainly set in when that goal went in for Swansea. And yeah, it's weird. I have never, I, I know you rightly point out the World Cup and what I was like with the with the penalty shootout, but I think I've taken this these nerves to an extreme level now where I don't know if I enjoy it, but um, but hey, I suppose we have to enjoy the ride and it is some ride as well. But we should just quickly point out that yesterday's win was the final time that Brentford will take to the turf at Griffin Park after a 116-year stay. After a 73-year exile from English top-flight football, there is no better way, I would say as a fan, to say goodbye to that famous old stadium with a pub on every corner, signing off with a great victory as well of course Brentford move into their new stadium which is only just a mile or so away uh, from Griffin Park so still very much in the heart of the Brentford community but Gregor when as we've spoken about the recent campaign hadn't gone the way it had gone Brentford fans needed kind of that sort of a victory didn't they to sort of say goodbye to our stadium that we've been all so faithful to for so very long yeah I mean there's still some sad you know some real sadness about the way this is that fans couldn't be there to sort of celebrate or even know that this was coming and be able to have the opportunity to, to say farewell before. And I'm sure one day we'll have the opportunity. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it, it, it kind of, I remember when I interviewed Frank a, a few months ago, I was trying to say, is this, you'd always sometimes try and get a line out of someone and say, is this written in the stars? And and uh, and they were, no one was willing to kind of, to countenance that, say that, <laughs> yes, obviously it would be a, a fairy tale if you were to, Return to the top flight for the first time in more than seventy years. 
the same season you were going into the new stadium. But that, I think really that is kind of secondary in, in the minds of the players and stuff. I, I have to say, it's a, one of my favourite places to play was Kenilworth Road because it was so close to Luton yeah. Town Stadium because it's so close. I love it when the, the ground is really kind of... The fans almost feel on top of it. And it was the same at Griffin Park. There was always that one little stand behind the goal that had that had two tiers. It's always seemed too small to have two tiers. You know, it was very old fashioned. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah, they're, they are, they're kind of, they're few and far between these grounds now. And Luton are, are, are also moving to a new stadium soon. Fulham's another old ground in London that's kind of, that's having some work done to it just now. So it could have perhaps felt to some fans that quite a lot was being made of the fact that this was the last game at Griffin Park. But with the circumstances it's in and the fact that there really aren't many of these grounds left, it was kind of, it was a great talking point as well. Yeah, a lovely send off. Uh, Tom, do you have any memories of Griffin Park? Must confess, I've never been. So I've, 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 I've hit, I'm listening with great heartache at not having being able to say that I've been. No, oh. um, I have, however, been to Kenilworth Road, and I don't have as many fond memories <laughs> as Gregor because I sat in the away end on my own and watched us throw away a two-goal lead to lose three-two. So I mean, I, don't, <laughs> I actually don't like these tight little horrible rounds. No, so I, uh, you know, I think they're great. I'm sure they're great if you're the home team when you're in the away end. I can't imagine. It's not, it's not very fun. Gregor, I'm with you, though. I like the romance of the old-fashioned grounds, I have to say. But having said that, I am looking forward to our new stadium and, and seeing what that has to offer and hopefully in some way trying to recreate what Griffin Park meant to so many of us Brentford fans. It might be difficult, but I know certainly those that have designed it and the Brentford team that have been behind it have certainly wanted to ensure that we do at least keep that sort of intensity that we've had at Griffin Park, but we will see anyway. Now in the red corner, finishing his first season as a Premier League manager in eighth, it's Mikhail Arteta. And in the blue corner, finishing his first season as a Premier League manager in fourth, it's Frank Lampard. Two Premier League club heroes became two Premier League club managers this season. Frank Lampard took over at Chelsea after his apprenticeship at Derby, whilst Mikel Arteta took over Arsenal after learning from one of the very best in Pep Guardiola at Manchester City. Now, one thing they have in common, they've both reached an FA Cup final in their first season as top flight managers. An FA Cup final that takes place on Saturday at Wembley behind closed doors. So, Gregor, how would you review their inaugural seasons at the clubs that they used to play for? I'll start with Arsenal and Arteta. I think that he's done enough to suggest that he he can be the, the man to sort of oversee the reset that's desperately needed at Arsenal. There's no doubt in his effect on the way that Arsenal play, uh, the pressing, the intensity of it, you know, building from the back. There's been some moments in recent weeks, I think even against uh, Man City in the semi-final, where you know the sight of of Granit Xhaka dropping between the centre halves and getting the ball from the goalkeeper and then playing kind of triangles around in the, their own penalty box is quite kind of a surprising and sort of be alarming <laughs> because there's someone like Jack are doing it but no you, you can see it you can see his imprint on the team and what and his, his work on the training ground and I think he's made a good impression on on a kind of human level too he's he's shown that he's got a bit of steel by sort of banishing Ozil and, and Gwen Doozy which both of which kind of please me greatly definitely so yeah I mean absolutely in terms of promise for the future and a bit of hope for the supporters it's all there he just the truth is though he still does not well he doesn't have the tools. He doesn't have the tools to to really compete. Um, and there's a big question mark of whether he will be given those tools still. So, um, But for Arteta himself, 
absolutely it's it's been very promising with Chelsea and Lampard I think it's pretty simple I think after Sarri Sarri ball last season they've they've been hugely entertaining to watch you know there's been some kind of there's been a connection rebuilt and and uh, rekindled between the supporters and and the and the club and the players because there's they're seeing their academy graduates come through but they've been far too inconsistent very poor defensively I mean, if you look at the fact that they they've beaten Manchester City, Liverpool, Arsenal, Tottenham twice, um, but then they look and lose to West Ham, Bournemouth, Newcastle. That kind of sums up their season. Um, but again, you know, Lampard's made great strides, and he's shown that as a manager, as a person, he's someone that the players want to play for, and and again, he's sort of engaging. And we can see there there are some tactical issues that that are still quite clear in terms of particularly in transition when Chelsea are defending, that are still kind of can be glaring. They were at Derby County as well. But look on the whole, if they, if either one of them, if you were to ask, you know, to, to win the FA Cup in their first season, and particularly Chelsea and Lampard being able to reach the Champions League spots and potentially add a trophy, there is no doubt in that that would be a huge success. Well, Mikel Arteta took over at Arsenal just nine days before the sides first met in December this season. However, Chelsea came out on top in a 2-1 win at the Emirates. A month later, Arsenal twice came from behind in a 2 all draw at Stamford Bridge. Now, a lot of football has passed since those games and time as well. Tom, can you, can you sort of work out where this game could be won and lost? Gregor touched on it there. I think Saturday's cup final will come down to Frank Lampard and what system he plays and whether he play you know whether he sticks or twists basically you know he's clearly wanted to play an exciting brand of attacking football fast paced you know likes of Pulisic bombing forward interchanging with people like Mount and that's been great and uh, you know as a neutral I talked about before watching all this football um post lockdown you know I watched their games against West Ham uh, and Crystal Palace and as a neutral they were absolutely fantastic to watch but they were fantastic to watch because of how unpredictable Chelsea are. You know, they beat Palace 3-2, but could have conceded a late equaliser, could even have lost. And against West Ham, they looked quite good going forward, but they were actually kind of easily nullified by a fairly kind of strict David Moyes team and conceded three goals with some absolutely awful defending. And, you know, those games prompted a bit of a change from Lampard. He dropped Marcus Alonso, I think, after the West Ham game but kept four at the back and then in games against Man United and recently um, he has gone to three at the back and with wing backs. And I think that will play a large part in deciding what happens on Saturday. And I half wonder whether we might even get a game of a bit of, you know, cat and mouse, two teams cancelling each other out and kind of waiting for the other to break so that they can counter-attack and try and nick a goal. I half wonder whether it might be a bit like that. But I think it will come down to Lampard and the team he picks and the system he goes for. Because I think a bit more, again, linked to what Gregor said, Arteta's backed into a corner a little bit with the players that he has in terms of the system and the tactics that he can play, I think. Gregor, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think um, you know, I think Chelsea have conceded more goals on the counter than any other team in the Premier League, I think eight this season. And Arsenal do. You know, I would say Arsenal are a counter-attacking team, but they have players like Aubameyang and uh, Pepe and you know Subalas can can play some some you know exciting forward passes. I think you know I think there 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 is a danger there, and I agree with Tom. I think actually the sort of fullbacks is a, a important area for both teams. If Reese James was to play, you know, um, he's 
he got one of the best crosses in in the league. I think going forward he's electric, but defensively he's questionable. And the same is true of Alonso. And uh, you know, Kieran Tierney might for Arsenal might have to play in a back three because of you know his injury to Mustafi. That means it'd be Maitland Niles coming in. But you know that it was quite it was quite clever what Arteta did against City in the semi final. Tierney was almost in a little kind of hybrid role. He he played in the back three, but when there were times where they switched to a back four and he was allowed to to bump forward and and when there, when it is a kind of bit of a game of cat and mouse, then the full backs creating overloads is is very important. One one thing I would also say is you know Giroud, as much as I think he's an average championship striker, <laughs> he's a uh, he's played against defenders who aren't particularly combative or good in the air, and I think you know there could be some joy for him, could definitely be some joy for him at Wembley, and and he's in great form despite all those those things I said about him earlier in the season. So you know I think Giroud could be could be a, a big player for Chelsea's kind of stretching stretching the game and in terms of getting on the end of crosses. We of course yet to see whether Arteta's gonna be backed in this transfer window this summer while Lampard, well we know they've already been dipping in, haven't they, at Chelsea with the signings they've already made with Hakim Ziyech and Timo Werner. Do you think that that's put some pressure on Lampard, Tom? Because when you're bringing in these players and they've been linked to a whole host of others as well, does that not suggest they need improving for next season, that the board are wanting more? Yeah, I think Frank Lampard's under a lot of pressure. I think, you know, he's obviously very clever with the media and he's, you know, very clever with Chelsea fans as well. And I think people have, not in exactly the same way as Ole Gunnar Solskjaer at Manchester United, but Chelsea fans have enjoyed him taking over and seeing him give players like Tammy Abraham, Mason Mount, Billy Gilmore, a chance in the team because for so long under Roman Abramovich, that's never happened. But I think underneath the surface of, you know, Champions League and, you know, maybe they win the FA Cup, I think that he must be under a lot of pressure. And as you say, Ziyech and Timo Werner are top level European players who have been persuaded to come to Chelsea. You know, this isn't giving Tammy Abraham a chance to play in the Premier League after a year in the Championship. This is signing one of the hottest prospects in Europe. And if at this time next season, they're still losing away at West Ham, conceding goals on the counter-attack and losing 4-3, he's going to be under a lot of pressure. So I think the leap up that Lampard and Chelsea have got to make in the Premier League and just generally from this season to next is a is a big step and I, I, I don't know whether he's he's got it in him because he still seems to me to be kind of unsure of what his tactics are unsure of his system and you know I think we see with other managers say if we talk about Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool when he took over you were always aware of what his style was and what his system was he just didn't have the players and then finally he built the team to play the way he wanted I think it's always a little bit concerning when a manager has a full season and you're sat here still going I don't quite know what you're about mate I think that's still a it would be if if I were a Chelsea fan would be a little bit concerning well whatever the future holds for Lampard and Arteta this Saturday gives them the chance to secure their first piece of silverware in their first season in charge of their respective clubs something not many managers can boast so Gregor simply who would you rather be going into Saturday's final and why I'd rather be despite all that the kind of the pressure. I would rather be. <laughs> I'd rather be Lampard. I think he's got, you know, an embarrassment of riches in an attacking sense. I think Tom's right. I think that if you know, even if they go out and sign two top-level centre halves uh, and a left back, 
there might still be a question mark about how how they seem to be wide open at times. There's games where they leave they leave the back door open so so wide, and you know it's even you know even if they've got N'Golo Kante and he's been injured a lot this season, but even they've not even really been able to utilise him. And there's a question mark about about how he fits into this team. And he's when N'Golo Kante's been at his best, he's played for teams that that don't play like Chelsea. So you know I think that I think that kind of there is a, an issue of how they defend, but it's a tactical issue as well. It's not just about the personnel. So but I think going into this game, I mean even if you look at the if you look at the, the two all game, which was a riotous game at, at Stamford Bridge back in January, Chelsea had nearly sixty percent of the ball. Uh, I think they had nineteen shots to Arsenal's two and it was two all. I think if Chelsea want to and they really turn up, then they're the better team, as things stand. So I'd I would rather be Frank Lampard. So you'd be rather Frank Lampard, Tom, would you? Or would you be thinking, oh, no, no, God, I'd like to be the Spaniard of Miguel Arteta? Well, I mean, coming from Salford, I definitely would like to be a Spaniard at, in, sometimes, <laughs> that's for sure, when it's raining. But um, I, I think initially when I thought about this, I thought Lampard all the way, you know, chance to manage people like Werner and Ziyech and things. But when I thought about this Saturday and I thought about some of the things I'd just talked about, if Chelsea lose on Saturday there will be some genuine questions for Frank Lampard and I think, and about their season. Whereas if Arteta loses, I don't think he can lose on Saturday Uh, unless they lose 7-0. I don't think Mikel Arteta can lose. If they put in a good performance um, and, you know, the fans are pleased with the style of play that they uh, produce and maybe they lose 2-1, 3-1 to a great goal from Pulisic or something. He can't lose. He won't be criticised. And I think as well, Arteta as a manager if you were to look at those two clubs and how they're set up, has a far greater chance of becoming something and producing something over a long period of time. I think maybe Arsenal have looked at what's happened at Man United after Sir Alex Ferguson left. Obviously, they had Arsene Wenger leave. And I think in the current climate and how far away they are from the top, Arteta might have a nice period of time, maybe a season, a season and a half, a couple of transfer windows to just kind of quietly implement what he wants to do. And I just... As much as it would be great fun to manage people like Hakim Ziyech and Tino Werner, I just think Lampard is under so much pressure. So I, I would I would pick Mikel Arteta uh, and the Spanish son and just quietly get a, get on with my job of reinvigorating this Arsenal team. As, t- as tough a job as that is, I'm not pretending that that's not going to take a long time. But I just think he's going to be given that time. And I think Lampard might not be. Love that. Okay, so we've got Team Lampard and Team Arteta. We will see what happens then on Saturday. Wembley, of course, hosts another big final this weekend when Little Harrogate Town take on non-league giants Notts County in the National League playoff final. It's been an incredible season for both clubs who meet on Sunday with a place in the Football League up for grabs. But first, let's take a look at Harrogate, who finished second, four points behind now promoted Barrow when this season was curtailed. The Yorkshire Spa Town, 15 miles from from Leeds is perhaps best known for its quaint tea rooms and antique shops as well as its eye-watering house prices and status as the most expensive place to live in the north of England. It is not, it would be fair to say, known for its football but thanks to the efforts of a father and son combo that may be about to change. Simon Weaver has been Harrogate's manager for 11 years making him the longest serving boss in the top five leagues of England. Perhaps we shouldn't be too surprised about that though because his father Irving owns the club but 
any notions of nepotism can be swiftly dispelled. Weaver Jr. guided Harrogate to promotion from the National League North in 2018 before reaching the playoffs in their first season in the fifth tier last term. Now they are just one win away from reaching the Football League for the first time in the club's history. It's a fascinating story, this one. Um, Gregor, tell us a little bit more about this this unique father and son duo and how they've come to own and, and now manage Harrogate Town. It's a pretty unique story. It's Simon Weaver applied for the job when he was 31 via an advert in the non-league paper, actually, believe it or not. And the club was on its knees. They were skint. They had no players. Uh, they'd finished, I think, in his first season, he finished bottom of the Conference North. But they were only saved because another club, because of the demise of another club, Northwich Victoria. And then a couple of years later, the owner basically pulled the plug and uh, Weaver's dad, Irving, oh, he's, he, he's a successful businessman. He owns a company called Strata Homes. And I think he kind of saw how much hard work and sort of effort his son was making to to forge a new career. And he'd seen the improvements in the first couple of years that he really he had the means to help and he felt, I'm able to help, I'm going to. So he, he invested in the club. And really it's been a kind of a gradual process of 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 improvement over those years. Obviously, there's there's question mark. People would always say he, he can never get sacked. He's got the safest job in in the top five leagues of of, uh, of football. And and when you know, I've asked them about that actually, and they're always they're very open about it. I think they know it's a pretty unique story. And they actually say it's the opposite. The opposite is true. It's their family bond. It almost makes it they're even more desperate to do well for one another. You don't want to disappoint your dad. <laughs> more Never. so than just than disappointing a chairman and I think the stability they also say that the stability the knowledge that you know it's going to take something pretty epic for for uh, for for the management and the ownership to change uh, it helps sort of attract players and there's they've had a very short kind of uh, low kind of turnover of players in recent years the club's kind of grown and grown and it's a it's a pretty remarkable story so when we look at the size of Harrogate town Tom would they be the smallest club ever to play in the Football League if they were to get past Notts County? They'd definitely be up there. I don't know whether they'd be the smallest. Maybe Gregor can help me out here. But I don't. it's an incredible story. And I would just say, is I think the point Gregor made about the stability and the kind of players that they've got in, Yeah. you know, having supported a club down at that level, who played at that level for a good number of years, you often hear about these stories of an owner coming in and throwing a load of money behind it. They obviously have a sensible kind of fan financial structure, but it doesn't seem to me to be that kind of a similar story. It's buying players who fit and work at that level. They've got a striker, Jack Muldoon, who used to play for Lincoln, who's an excellent, excellent striker at that level. Um, and I think he's been there for a good maybe two years now. And so I think that's that's the important thing that Gregor touched on there in terms of their success. But I don't know whether they're the smallest club ever. I, I don't think know, Gregor. Gregor. I think Forrest Green might have something to say with that because uh -huh. actually the the place they come from, Nailsworth, I think there's only nine thousand people live there. So Harrogate's a bigger town. But I think, you know, if you were to look at the history of the club, I think Forrest Green were in the conference even before uh, Dale Vince bought the club. Whereas Harrogate have been down in the kind of Midlands combined league, and you know, there really is a history of a of a kind of certainly nowhere near the the conference even uh, for a long period of their history um and uh, you know they're a club that 
the crowds have grown. I remember speaking to the to Irving Weaver, and he said the first the first year they that he bought the club, they sent out kind of three season tickets or something. You know, that's all they had. They had like two hundred people come through the gates, and now three. it's twelve, and now it's twelve hundred. And a big part of that has been the fact that they laid an artificial pitch in in uh, I think it was twenty seventeen, and. You know that allowed. They now have, I think, four hundred kids training on it every week. They have, uh, you know, a walking uh, game of walking football for the elderly. They have women's teams, so it's kind of become a, a sporting hub for the town. In a town which is obviously soaks up so many lead support. You know, everyone's a lead supporter really around there. But this is a this could be a, a kind of alternative a a league two club that's kind of that's grown sustainably and and uh, run with a lot of care and attention and love. So it's a good story. It is a good story, and if it all goes to plan, they could, though, have to make some drastic changes, wouldn't they, to their pitch? Because they play on an artificial one, don't they? Which, of course, EFL yeah. regulation state would have to be torn up if they were to win promotion. Would they actually have time to do all this? I believe that the, the, the Football League have, have granted them, if they were to be promoted, they would say, you know, for the first month you can play somewhere else. You know, I don't think Simon Weaver wouldn't tell me where that was, hmm. but... Um, they they have been granted that, and they also have uh, an, a kind of relationship with a school a mile down the road where they can lay the the artificial pitch so that they still have that kind of connection with the town and it's a still a sporting hub. But yeah, obviously the the time scale, the turnaround is a lot a lot smaller than normal. So there will be a lot of work going on down at Weatherby Road if if uh, they're successful on Sunday. But they will be given special dispensation yeah. if required. But of course, standing between Harrogate and League Two is a proud old club that has fallen on hard times. Notts County lost their status as the world's oldest professional league club when they were relegated from League Two last season. Last summer, they flirted with extinction as players and bills went unpaid and the club couldn't even afford to pay for a new set of strips this time last year. A buyer for the Magpies was finally found just seven days before the start of the new campaign, after which manager Neil Ardley faced a race against time to sign enough players to begin the season. <laughs> it's been quite a turnaround, hasn't it, Gregor, in the space of just 12 months for Notts County, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, people look at, you know, at Notts County and say they should be in the promotion mix, they should be they should be involved in this and, and in the playoffs. But after that start, I think they also they only won two of the first 10 games. They signed seven players in one day and 13 in two weeks. So it was kind of throw a team together at the last minute once they they had the green light to. From where they came 12 months ago, you know, the, their local MP was was raising the plight of the club in, in Parliament. They were really close to going to the wall. And they, they even tried to call it a, a favour from Juventus, who they, they furnished with strips back in the day to kind of... The, the reason Juventus play in black and white is because Notts County gave them black and white strips. So they, they needed strips paid for, and they, she tried to call on Juventus to, to kind of repay the favour. Did they uh, help? Luckily, well, luckily, the, the takeover happened kind of <laughs> the day later or something, so they, they didn't have to, but that's how desperate things were. So, yeah, I mean, it was some really quite embarrassing times for them too. Their, 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 their former owner was, was some of the stuff you couldn't make up uh, that was going on in the club during his period in charge. But they, they, so really, I think Ardley deserves a great deal of credit for, for being able to kind of gel the team together and sort of rid the club of the negativity that was there just a year ago. And and they were in a great run of form before the, before the, the season was suspended. So uh, I think they will be favourites, but it's uh, it's, got, it's going to be an intriguing game.
And I know there's a sort of uh, there's some sort of similarities, aren't there, with the owners of Notts County and Brentford, who we were speaking about a little bit earlier on, in terms of their approach and background to signing players. What can you tell us about that, Gregor? So the owners are um, two Danish brothers called Christopher and Alexander Reitz, and they own a company called Football Radar, who um, they have offices in London, Liverpool, Bulgaria. They basically supply analysis of football to betting companies in order for them to compile their odds. So, you know, that that is in itself is is similar to what um Matthew Benham does. Yeah. And you know, they did when they very rarely speak, they're quite discreet. Uh as I said, Alan Hardy was someone who was full of bombast and, and big big predictions and big sort of promises, you know, we'll be in the championship in five years. Nottingham Forest should look over their shoulder and it's you know, nonsense like that. Whereas these guys are very kind of studious and they talk about the underlying stats and looking beyond the results. So some of these things, they obviously plan to use their expertise and knowledge in that in their field of work to, to help the club move forward. And, and the noises from the club are that it's been a very harmonious relationship between them and, and the manager, Neil Ardley, who, who you know, he's, he's got experience of working in, at that level, but there's no kind of friction. It's, it's a good balance between letting him get on with his job and offering their help and advice when it comes to looking at what players to sign and whatnot. So, so definitely a huge turnaround for for Notts County in the last twelve months. Tom, just tell us. You you spoke a little bit before about your club Lincoln and how you've been in the National League. You know how difficult it is. There have been uh, other clubs who we've known to have had football league pedigree. Luton, you know, can even say even higher than than that. Grimsby as well. Yourselves, Lincoln. Uh, <laughs> How difficult is it when you've suffered relegation to bounce straight back? Incredibly difficult. I mean, it, it always makes me laugh and I'm sure it makes other fans of um, clubs at that level laugh when you kind of see about the woes and the tears of when you get relegated from the Premier League to the Championship and, oh, we're going to have to sell a few players. I mean, when you get relegated from the Football League to the Conference, you know, you, the whole club can go to pot, as Gregor said. Um, so to be backing with a chance of going straight back up is an incredible achievement. I mean, it took us five, six years. Um, the same year we got relegated, Stockport County went down and they then went down again straight away the next season. We had a couple of seasons of just surviving relegation um, before we got um, new owners and obviously new managers. Neil Ardley's done an unbelievable job. I would say it's interesting all the things Gregor talked about, how when you look at the kind of timeline, the kind of crisis was almost happening as they were being relegated, if that, if you see what I mean, and that kind of mm. went through the summer in such an accelerated manner that I half wonder whether it's almost done them well to kind of get that out of the way, if that makes sense. Because if you were to compare it, you know, I think back to Lincoln, you know, we went through three or four terrible managerial appointments, you know, signing players, and you're thinking, has this guy really ever played football before? This is, I mean, surely not. So I think they kind of got that nightmare period out over the way in an almost accelerated manner, kept Ardley, which I think was a big thing for stability, um, and have then, you know, flipped that momentum on its head and have, have used it to their advantage. But it's I'm not, I'm not taking, as much as them, there's a bit of local rivalry with Lincoln, I'm not taking away uh, any plaudits. They deserve it because it's an incredible turnaround because it doesn't happen that often. So, Gregor, what would it mean, promotion financially for both of these clubs? In relatively, you know, relatively speaking, it's kind of it is similar actually to the the, the gulf between the Championship and the Premier League because, although the sums are you know minute in comparison, you, your central funding in the National League amounts to about ninety thousand pounds, 
and if you get promoted to the football league, it's close to one point three million pounds. So, you know, it's a huge, huge, huge gulf, and a club like a, for a club like Harrogate, it's that's transformative. For mm. a club like Notts County, it's like you know, they they've been in a kind of life support machine. They're relying upon the the owners, and even even in, with the kind of with COVID arriving and there being no supporters uh, allowed in the stadiums, and there's still question marks about how that's gonna gonna look going forward. Clubs rely on the match day revenue, and there's none, so it could be you know it's a huge, huge, huge kind of carrot for them financially, and I think it's gonna be an intriguing game. It certainly will be, and one to look forward to as well. It could be the fairy tale that we always like to see, isn't it? But whoever does well at, at Wembley, it'll be great to have them in the Football League. That is it for now. Thanks to Tom and to Gregor as well. We will be back with you on Monday. In the meantime, make sure you subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times for award-winning journalism on every platform. It's just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. Do enjoy your weekend. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone.